You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Today, we are joined by Julia Wood, an occupational therapist specializing in Parkinson's disease and movement disorders. Julia serves as faculty for the Allied Team Training for Parkinson's program for the Parkinson Foundation and as certification and training faculty for the Lee Silverman Voice Training, or LSVT, BIG program. She is a facilitator for the Parkinson's Disease Self-Efficacy Learning Forum and serves on the Comprehensive Care Subcommittee for the World Parkinson's Congress. Julia, you are an expert in person-centered evaluation and treatment of individuals with Parkinson's disease, and we really could not be more excited to have you on today to discuss the American Occupational Therapy Association's Parkinson's Disease Practice Guidelines. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. As, uh, as covered in our brief little introduction, you have become a leader in occupational therapy practice and intervention for people with Parkinson's disease. Can you talk to us a little bit about your career path? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so um, it's, I think, quite interesting. Um, and it might be a little repetitive today because in some other interviews, I've answered this question. So I apologize. But um, occupational therapy is actually a second career for me. Um, my undergraduate degree is in exercise science and wellness. And um, I started my own business from that, specializing in um, Pilates and gyrotonic and really very mindful movement-based practices back in Washington State. And so I did that for around 15 years. And then the last, the economic recession of 2008 happened. And so I had, you know, a small business. My husband was working for a metal work group at the time that was also kind of a custom business. And so we both lost our jobs with that recession. And so for many years, years leading up to that, however, I had been, I'd received a comment from a lot of clients, you know, you've helped me more than my therapist did or more than my doctor did. I wish, you know, you could build insurance. I wish you could be my therapist. And so I had been contemplating for about three years prior to this happening, the idea of going back to get my master's. Um, At the time I was thinking physical therapy. I think because I was so focused on body mechanics and kinesiology. Um, At the time, I had two physical therapists in my studio who also were um, instructors. And one of them one day said, really, physical therapy? You think like an occupational therapist. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she's like, you always take everything back to function and the role in that person's life. And she mentioned a recent event where um, I had some clients I was working with and they were talking about pain when they were gardening and they lived close by. And I was like, can I come by and see you garden? And so I went to watch and see what they were doing when they were actually moving. And then I was able to better um, develop their exercise program that we were working on. And so I took her advice and started really looking into occupational therapy and realized, wow, this does really fit. So I went back to get my graduate degree then, um, and it was, I had always been fascinated by movement from kind of a 
physical uh, and physiological standpoint. And I became very interested when I was in graduate school in movement from a neurological perspective, because I had had some clients with Parkinson's disease. And then during my field work at the Mayo Clinic, I had a handful, I'd say, of clients that had Parkinson's disease. And I immediately noticed that either there was something about these people that made them nice or just nice people got Parkinson's because I loved my Parkinson's patients so much. And I also loved the concept of kind of the um, Kinesia Paradoxica where, you know, they have a perception of how they can move, but it's not always accurate and you could train around that. And so I was really fascinated with this sensory motor aspect of movement um, related to Parkinson's disease and then kind of fell in love with the population and ironically like wanted this outpatient job when I got out, you know, working with Parkinson's and um, was about to give up when I was hunting for jobs. It was becoming really frustrating because at the time, not only was I told there's no jobs for OTs and Parkinson's, I was told by someone that OT wasn't really needed in Parkinson's. It was really more physical therapy and speech therapy. And I was really kind of, you know, there wasn't a role for us in that. And I just didn't really agree and I didn't really believe that um, because I feel like our scope of practice is so broad that if you really are doing person-centered care with a condition like Parkinson's that is so multifactorial, how could there not be a role? So long and short of it, I could make this a long drawn out story, but I won't. I applied for a different position um, at the time that I thought was an inpatient rehab. I'd kind of given up looking for Parkinson's and I got this email that there was a misposting and it's actually not an an inpatient rehab. You would actually be an outpatient rehab with Parkinson's. And I almost fell out of my chair. I had to go and get my husband. I was like, I think I'm hallucinating at this point. Like I'm just (laughs) seeing what I want to see because there's no way this could be the thing. And it was. And so I found that, you know, ironically, once again, it was like all the planets aligned for this. My daughter my that was going for her college orientation the next week um, was close to where I needed to interview for the position. And literally in less than a week, I had the position. Wow. Yeah, it was really crazy. It's been a wild journey and um, a great one because, you know, when do you really find what you love and find your passion and then actually get it and in such an odd way yeah yeah thanks for sharing that that personal experience it really is a a testament to your resilience and and willingness to be bold um in in doing what you love and and pursuing uh what you love and what you know we mentioned how you're involved with the subcommittee for the world parkinson's congress i wanted to ask you about that before we dive into these practice guidelines How, how did you get involved with this subcommittee and could you describe your role uh, as a member of that subcommittee for us? Oh, for sure. Um, That is one of the things that I've been most excited about. It got a literal squeal when I got the email that I made the committee. Um, So Eli Pollard is the director of the World Parkinson's Congress, and Eli also has an instrumental role in the Parkinson's Foundation in the clinical education programming. So she's very involved with the allied team training program for Parkinson's that I'm service faculty for. So that is how I encountered Eli, a new Eli. 
five. And so I got the invitation to be on the comprehensive care subcommittee and there are different subcommittees for the world Parkinson's Congress. And I should probably, I guess, kind of explain what it is too. Um, it happens every three years and it is a huge Congress, you know, symposium for people from around the world, um, for people with Parkinson's, for researchers, clinicians, health professionals to come and learn more and share more about Parkinson's disease. And so I was selected for the Comprehensive Care Subcommittee, but there's also, um, I believe, a clinical science and a general science committee that were also um, developing programming as well. So what we were asked to do is first have a large focus group with everyone on the comprehensive care subcommittee. And I had a little bit of a moment of like, (gasps) when I got on the call, because there were so many researchers that I really looked up to and clinicians. um, And it was, it was humbling for a moment to be like, wow, you know, look, there's, you know, there's Alice Neubauer (laughs) on my Zoom call. Um, And so we just had this focus group talking about as far as comprehensive care, what did we feel was really needed? What types of workshops or sessions would people want to come to to hear about at the World Parkinson's Congress? Kind of what were the hot topics? And so we tossed around a lot of ideas. I mean, cognition and vision and creativity and, you know, mindfulness and like all of these different things were coming out. And so all of those responses were recorded and then they looked at them to see how they could divide us into small groups, usually around three to four of us working to develop and flush out different topics and workshops. So I got to work on one for creativity in Parkinson's, which interestingly, I won't side note too much, there's some changes to creativity with Parkinson's. So they're not sure if it's when people start taking dopamine or if it's changes to dopamine in the brain. But we see not only people gain an interest in art and creativity, but if they've also been um, creative and artistic before, like maybe they were a painter, there are changes that happen to their style of art with their color, with things like this. Dr. Chatterjee here at the University of Pennsylvania has done a lot of that research. Um, So that was interesting to flush out. And then the other one was on mindfulness. And then the greatest part was when after we all put together our proposals for our sessions, um, all three committees were asked to meet for some Friday mornings for two hours and go through all of them, make suggestions, recommendations. And once again, I'm looking and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, that's Eduardo Tolosa. (laughs) I was like, wow, Um, kind of heroes, you know, of mine and, and seeing them in this context. So it's really exciting. And the final program has not come out yet. I'm not sure what made it in or what didn't, but it was really humbling um, to be with people who are so well known and so versed in the subject and get to represent, you know, occupational therapy and and my clinical experience and what I felt would be um, relevant and helpful for people with Parkinson's. So I look forward to it. Now, the fingers crossed moment is it's in Barcelona, Spain. I have wanted to go to Barcelona, Spain, like my whole life. And we don't know if it's going to happen. 
because of COVID. So fingers are crossed that it will happen. But I have to admit, when I see people running around not following <laughs> public health guidelines, I'm like, please, I'd really like to go to Spain. Could you? <laughs> Could you not do Absolutely. that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll have our fingers crossed for you too, that, that it happens in, in Barcelona and you can fulfill that dream. And that's such a, a cool experience. Um, I know for me hearing that, it, it's almost like you went from having people tell you that there's no role for occupational therapy and working with people who have Parkinson's disease to now being on a worldwide committee and contributing to some of the latest and greatest in Parkinson's disease research and, and approach um, and really helping kind of the, the future of interventions take take form. And that's that's really just amazing and, and sounds really cool to me. And I, I want to ask you, Julia, what kind of motivates you to, to generate and disseminate research, best practices and guidelines for working with this population? Well, I think so much of it is it's really important, number one, that we carve out our space as occupational therapists in a practice domain like this with a, you know, it's the second most common neurodegenerative condition um, that there is. And so in order to do that, though, we really need to lean to the evidence and the guidelines and, and um, to, you know, patient-centered care and also care that is appropriate. And so my mission almost has become, I think, number one, trying to make people aware of some of the uh, I call them urban legends of OT, you know, <laughs> where we think and assume something works based on this urban legend mentality. Like, for example, I'm just going to throw it out there, like, you know, weighted utensils, weighted things, you know, to control tremor. And unfortunately, there's just has not been evidence to support that. However, you will still, every course I teach, when I present on that, there's someone who's like, really? I thought that was the only thing you could do that worked for tremor. And I give everyone with tremor weighted utensils or weighted pens. And so, you know, for me, what happens when we, A, don't do person-centered care and don't do evidence-based practice, I think that we can really devalue our profession. So I think it's very important to re represent our profession in the light that it it really can be shown in, which is person-centered, occupation-based, really driven to improve quality of life. And I also, I really look at every person I treat, and this came from Mayo. I was told this by um, one of my directors there. You know, if you view everyone like they were your family member, that's your loved one you're treating, that's your brother, your sister, your mother, your grandfather, whoever you think it is. And you would want them to have the best care. And so you should try to give that person sitting in front of you the best care because that is someone's <laughs> grandparent or, you know, mother or father. So I think it's twofold. It's really trying to um, represent OT in the light that I feel it should be represented in, which is very evidence-based and patient-centered, but also really giving the respect and the attention um, on the individual that we should give in order to give the best care possible. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, for that emphasis, that's uh, really encouraging and, and a beautiful insight into how you approach um, occupational therapy treatment. And I think it really illustrates why it's so important for practitioners to use evidence to inform their practice when working with, with all patients and, and especially people who have Parkinson's disease. 
I think now it's a, a good transition into our discussion on the practice guidelines. Before we dive into that, and I know you've mentioned a, a couple things on the topic, but could you give us an, an overview of Parkinson's disease? Oh, absolutely. So um, Parkinson's disease, as I said, is the second most common neurodegenerative condition. And it is a you know sensory motor issue that, that happens because of the changes, um, the loss of dopamine in the brain, mostly in the substantia nigra. So there's a death of the neurons that produce and utilize dopamine in the brain. And so because of that, you know, Back when James Parkinson wrote the essay on the shaking palsy, the thought was it was just physical, right? There were just mostly physical changes that happened. They didn't really think there were cognitive changes at the time. But now um, with advances in, um, you know, neurology and neuroscience, we have more of an understanding of the role of dopamine in the brain and also all of the various parts of the brain that are involved um, with Parkinson's. So, you know, you do at the time now there, there, they view it in kind of these loops in the brain. So we know that Parkinson's can affect motor function, like walking, getting up from a chair, arm swing, fine motor coordination, manual dexterity, a lot of things about our movement, both gross motor and fine motor. Um, But also there are changes, significant changes to cognition, um, often even early on. And uh, Dr. Aaron Foster, who's been part of this um, practice guideline work as well, you know, has, has done work looking at subjective cognitive decline too. So when people have changes to their cognition that don't necessarily show up on like a mocha or a mini mental, but they still perceive the difference. So those changes typically early on are executive function a lot, um, multitasking, um, switching attention, shifting attention. Um, so it's very important that people understand that that is part of it. Even if someone tests within normal limits, there's usually some slowness or bradyphrenia to their processing or these different changes to more complex um, cognitive abilities. But then also changes to mood. So it's very common for people to experience depression, anxiety, apathy, or a little combination of kind of all of the above. Um, And then lastly, um, oculomotor is, is part of what we know. Um, these loops in the brain effect, but so people can have changes to their vision as far as convergence, insufficiency, um, contrast sensitivity, um, scanning. So a lot of, it's a very multifactorial condition and I'm like on a crusade almost (laughs) to to change it from, I think we should call it not just a movement disorder instead of a movement disorder. Because so many times what the literature shows is that it's actually the non-motor symptoms or the non-movement movement symptoms that people find most troubling and most impactful to their quality of life. And I feel that the shift in focus to those symptoms and those issues over the last few years is a lot of what has led to more inclusion for occupational therapists. Because if you think about it, those are a lot of things we work on. Sleep is a problem, fatigue, like all of these different things that we can help with. And we're recognizing Recognizing that those are an issue with with Parkinson's, and I think it carves out more of a space for our skill set as well. Yeah, absolutely, I think the the movement disorder aspect of Parkinson's disease may be the most visible um, to to people on the outside, but for someone experiencing Parkinson's disease, those other changes may be more important to them. Uh, so, thank you for hammering home that point. And giving us kind of an outline, there really is so much that that Parkinson's disease affects. 
you're the first author on the Parkinson's disease practice guidelines, Julia. Could you briefly outline some of the work from you and your collaborators that went into developing these practice guidelines? Oh, sure. Um, So prior to my coming on the scene, um, there were some systematic reviews that were requested by AOTA. And so those were completed and done. And um, in different domains of practice, looking at IDLs, ADLs, sleep, caregiver um, interventions. And so those systematic reviews were completed and then a table of evidence completed prior to us really starting this. And then Whitney Henderson and Aaron Foster and I are on the, the project. So we've had to come up with an, you know, an introduction and background. So kind of like I just did, giving a general background and discussion of the disease and outlining really the role for OT, transition for a need for practice guidelines, really talking about why this is necessary. Um, we're also looking at some of the gaps because still, when you track the data on therapy usage, OT is still relatively low compared to PT. I mean, I should say usage of all the therapies is not where we want it to be, but definitely um, OT, we've got some work to do. And then we've been working on developing algorithms. Um, Whitney has done a beautiful job with those. And so these, you know, great, you know, kind of artistic and and visual um, diagrams of what the research shows along the different treatment parameters. I've been working on case studies, so developing some examples from my practice to really show um, how you use the interventions, what that would look like in real time. Erin is doing a great job right now. A big part of what we want to highlight, and I think as we move through the conversation today of some of the evidence that was found, there's a lot of clinical gaps a whole lot. <laughs> and I think that that you see that a lot with OT because what we do is very hard to quantify often. It's easier to qualify. So Aaron is doing a great job of outlining some of those gaps and what those look like. And we'll be um, detailing those out more of kind of how when you find a gap, in the research, um, how you can put it together based on what we know from research from other disciplines or looking at overarching themes as well in the evidence. So that's a lot of what's going on. Um, We just had a meeting on Friday and it's exciting too, because talking about, are we going to put in some outcomes, you know, kind of really um, AOTA has been great with, they know the content they want put in this, but they're being fairly flexible on how we paint the full picture. And I think that for me is the most important thing is I don't want this to just look like another evidence table and AOTA doesn't want that either. (laughs) And some information that's not usable to anyone. I want someone to be able to pick this up and take the different components that we're working on, those algorithms, those case studies, the tables of evidence, um, and then the clinical gaps and really have an idea and a framework of how they can approach Parkinson's. Julia, that is music to my ears. That is our <laughs> our whole goal here on on everyday evidence is to to help contribute to to making research more applicable, more consumable, um, and more really just just usable in a in a clinical setting. Um, so I love to hear that that you and and your team are really going above and beyond to try and make that possible um, as well. It keeps me up at night. I'm gonna be honest. Like it wakes me up sometimes, and I'm just like how do I say that? Or where do I put that? Or where would that go? Because it's, it's, 
like trying to translate practice, you know, in this three-dimensional visual um, interactive process into a document. And it's a lot harder than you would think, but I really hope. um, And I think that with all the great work that the three of us are doing, I I think we'll be able to do it, but it does definitely, it's, it's a huge task. It's a huge order. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, well, let's talk about it here um, and maybe hear how some of those ideas um, are going to be coming alive um, in those practice guidelines. You mentioned the systematic review and there's that beautiful classic systematic review question that y'all are, are looking for research on, which is what is the evidence for the effectiveness of interventions within the scope of occupational therapy to improve and maintain performance and participation of And then there's four areas of occupation that you mentioned. Activities of daily living, sleep and rest, IADLs, education, work, volunteering, leisure and social participation, and participation in the caregiver role. So to start off, Julia, what are the best supported interventions for improving and maintaining performance of ADLs, sleep and rest? Absolutely. Well, first off, I want to note that AOTA has great um, or, or, you know, pretty strict guidelines as far as what evidence can be included. And so this is an overview of the evidence that that they felt was best. Um, It by means is not all means is not everything out there. But I think this is a really good start. But you also will see the gaps, you know, that come up too. So basically sleep disturbance, as I mentioned earlier, is a really common problem in Parkinson's, not only difficulty falling asleep, but also issues with fragmented sleep and REM behavioral sleep disturbance. So some of the interventions that have teased out for that. One is cognitive behavioral therapy as an intervention. And so looking at using that as a program of, of training people and, and teaching people some, you know, strategies around sleep. Um, it was found, though, that when you think about that, as much as we can perform cognitive behavioral therapy interventions as OTs, more training is needed. So if that's something that someone is interested in, they do need to do some more specific training. Um, mindfulness Meditation from that was another one that teased out in the literature as helping with sleep and rest. And there were some specific guidelines from that article on how to really address the mindfulness. And that is something, when you look across the research in Parkinson's, mindfulness is coming up quite a bit for a lot of different things. And so in this instance, we teased it out for sleep. And then also another one, and I know this is probably going to surprise people, is exercise. There have been some studies that have looked at exercise for sleep. One looked at multimodal exercise, which means there's three dimensions to the exercise program. So often it's cardio, balance, and resistance training. And so that was therapist monitored. That helped with sleep participation. And then, you know, there's been some articles outside of that too, one that even compared sleep hygiene to exercise. And they found that the exercise was more beneficial than the sleep hygiene training even. So I think those are some different interventions that can be done. Cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, exercise. It gives a nice scope to addressing that because I think most people will find that they will have patients who will have problems with sleep. And having at least those three, you know, kind of broad categories to choose from, I think can help guide um, intervention. Uh, absolutely. And it's it's nice to have more than one possible intervention so that a, a practitioner can determine what the best fit is for 
the person they're working with. Absolutely. You mentioned that that it may come as a surprise that that physical activity and exercise uh, was found to be so effective um, in improving ADL performance and specifically with sleep and rest. Uh, why why would you say physical activity and exercise are so effective in addressing this this area of participation? You know, we're learning more about that, but literally there's a saying now with Parkinson's that exercise is medicine. And I I think we're learning more about what that exactly means. But often, you know, if you throw exercise in the mix as an intervention, even like that when they compared it to sleep hygiene and it won. Um, In some of the studies, they'll compare, you know, cognitive training, for example, to like cognitive training with exercise and the exercise group always there's it seems like the exercise group always wins um and i think it's we're learning more about why i think number one is it's it stimulates the system if you think about what exercise does to the brain we you know believe that there's this brain derived neurotrophic factor that could possibly be even protective or neuroprotective for people when they exercise but so many things happen at a brain level you know so many physiological changes neurotransmitters are really least. So I think that it's that stimulation from it that not only helps them move better because, you know, obviously when you're exercising, you're moving, you know, there's a stimulation to the muscles, to the physical system, but there's a lot of things happening on a brain level. And even myself, you know, I noticed this morning, I thought why, because I have some difficulty with sleep. I thought, why did I sleep so much better last night? And immediately I was like, oh, I exercised more intensely yesterday. So, I mean, I think it's one of those things that we're kind of looking at it like, wow, what does this do for Parkinson's? But I think if we're really honest, it kind of does all of those things for us. It's just being a human as well. So, yeah, I think that that we're learning more about what exercise does. The one thing I will say, we need more information on the dosing, on, you know, um, the duration, the modality. But what also, I, I noticed a study that looked at and compared, oh my gosh, now I'm, I'm completely blanking. It was like they compared Tai Chi and golfing. That's what it was. Tai Chi and a golf swing, because Tai Chi has kind of always been, or not always, but is seen as one of the balance interventions that can help. And they found that with the golf swing, people also improved. So the And, you know, they need more research on that, but they're starting to see that, like, I think it's just being active for one thing. I think that's really important. And I, I personally feel that at the end of the day, when this teases out, we're going to find that there's a level of salience to it too. I think when you find something people are interested in and motivated to do, because there's a lot of researchers looking at motivation in the basal ganglia as well. I mean, you know yourself, like you exercise a lot harder if it's something that you enjoy, you know, or something you're really into. Um, I went to my husband's cycling class one day and it lasted for four four hours and was the most boring thing I've ever done. It actually in truth was only 45 minutes, but (laughs) it just, you know what I mean? And I'm sitting there thinking, this is what my patients feel like when I give them something to do, they don't want to do either. (laughs) And so I always use those things as reminders of like, that's not a meaningful activity to me. So I had no motivation. I barely tried, you know, I was just kind of like, is it over yet? Um, And I think that's, what's going to tease out too eventually. And that's kind of hard to tease out, but what role does, does motivation and interest play in, you know, people's participation in exercise and then also the benefits they're going to derive from exercise. Absolutely. And I, I think that's such a great 
I guess, role of occupational therapy is being able to identify what's meaningful to a person yes, uh, and then designing interventions based off of uh, those motivations. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. Julia, what would you say are some ways practitioners can incorporate exercise, but as well uh, CBT or mindfulness into their treatments uh, when working with people who have Parkinson's? Absolutely. So there's a lot of different um, avenues out there for exercise that you can access. You know, I, I do have a bias toward LSVT big. I'm faculty. I've used the program a lot. I think it's fantastic. So that's one way. And the great thing, I think we're probably going to talk more about LSVT big, but it really incorporates the functional task, um, it being meaningful to the individual. You can really tailor it to them. The Parkinson's Wellness and Recovery Program, both um, exercise programs are actually designed by Becky Farley, who a physical therapist. And they're great because they really target different movements that people need to do with Parkinson's. The Brian Grant Foundation also has, you can go on their website and do a training in an exercise program that they have for free. So there's a lot of things out there if you want kind of, quote, Parkinson's specific exercise that you can use. But then also, I think the big thing is considering the interest of the individual. What do they like to do? What do they have access to do? Nothing is worse than in the beginning, you know, there was a study by um, Jay Albers at the Cleveland Clinic close to the time when I, I had started my practice. And it was really funny because I had people coming in with these prescriptions from their doctor that they were to do 30 minutes of stationary cycling for 80 to 90 revolutions per minute, five days per week. And I'd look over at this person and go, when is the last time you exercised or what do you currently do to exercise? And they're like, I haven't exercised for 30 years. <laughs> you know, and you're like, okay, well, we're going to have to find a way to make this fit you, right? So I think the big one is looking at what fits their lifestyle. What are they interested in? Do they have options for group classes? Are they somebody who likes group classes? Do they need to work with a personal trainer? Like, So I think you first have to center in on what does this individual want to do? What do they like to do? What's available for them to do? And then I really think it's important for OT practitioners, if you want to work with the Parkinson's population, you need to get certified and or understand some type of exercise intervention and have your your bag of tricks, so to speak, pretty down, dialed out. Being it, um, that my you know my certification before or, or degree was exercise science, I have a lot of modalities I pull from. Um, I'm certified in Pilates, gyrotonic. I've done yoga. I've done Tai Chi. So for me, I feel like I've got a pretty full toolkit or bag of tricks to pull from when I need to. So I think that's the most important thing. Center it on the patient and have as many options as you have available. If you feel like you don't have a whole lot of options, then maybe you need to refer them to physical therapy to really more find, you know, if you don't feel like that's a strong suit for you. And then what we can do as OTs is more focus on how they can work it into their daily routine 
and, you know, helping to find something meaningful, but maybe we get our PT colleagues involved too. Um, as far as mindfulness and CBT, I have used mindfulness a lot um, for anxiety, for sleep issues, for different things. And what I like to do is um, teach a basic mindfulness practice, kind of what it is, what it can do. And then I go from um, a perspective when needed that Thich Nhat Hanh used in his book called Pieces Every Step, where you chunk a mindfulness activity with a daily task. How OT is that? Um, <laughs> so, so the um, alert on your phone, on your email goes off, right? And you stop and you use that as a reminder to stop and take a deep breath or have a minute of mindfulness. Um, you're washing the dishes. And you just do it mindfully. So I had a practice I did with a lot of my clients where if I was working on this, I would say, I want you to pick one task this week. Just one. could be brushing your teeth. It could be showering. It could be getting dressed. And during that activity, you're going to try to just be mindful. Just do your mindfulness practice. Don't think about what you've got to do or need to do or should do. Just be mindful and in the moment. And then I usually get them set up with some type of an app, Insight Timer, Headspace, something like that. Some of them a lot of my clients have gone on to do formalized uh, mindfulness programs. Like there's some locally at universities or there's a free program online called Palouse Mindfulness that some have used. So that's a way that I incorporated is both helping them set up whatever level of practice is, you know, beneficial or, or applicable for them and then trying to give them the tools and training to support it. Um, with CBT, I've done some training myself in, in CBT. So I think it's important to get some education in it. The Beck Institute is a great um, organization to get some basic trainings in CBT um, and really learn how to use it and incorporate it. Because um, a lot of times, you know, there's great tools and, and options that come along with those for you to use. But you do need, especially CBT, I think out of all of those is one that often we need a little more training in and how to utilize that. But then with CBT, what I've done is sometimes I have worksheets for people that I'm working on, or it's reframing um, different elements of, you know, their program and how they're looking at it, um, kind of looking at some prioritization and scheduling and creating a daily routine. So it's practical strategies, but I think it does help to have a little extra training. Absolutely. <clears throat> Ooh, excuse me. Thank you for uh, those recommendations and, and those resources as well. Based on the systematic review and the practice guidelines, which interventions for improving and maintaining performance of IADLs should practitioners consider using with clients and why? All right, guess what? Here we go. <laughs> Physical activity. <laughs> so, ding, ding, ding. Exactly. They're going to think I'm some type of like exercise ambassador. Like I have to try to get everybody exercising, but this is what shows up. I can't stress it enough. And it's really, uh, it. what came up with the IDLs is looking at, for us anyway, focusing our interventions on how to help the person with Parkinson's increase their physical activity. So we might need to find some way to really help them incorporate it in their daily routine. So part of, some of the things that teased out in the literature uh, was a use of peer mentoring. So kind of having them have, you know, a family member or loved one or another person with Parkinson's 
organizations that they kind of are accountable to, um, providing some social support. So that might be through support groups or, you know, um, social exercise groups. Um, Cognitive behavioral therapy comes up again. So looking at some of the cognitive behavioral techniques that help support compliance um, and carryover. Um, But then also health behavior changes. So goal setting. And I know this is something I've done a lot with clients. Um, Looking at action and coping planning and, you know, giving some feedback, but also getting feedback from them on what's working, what's not. And then activity tracking. And that can be done sometimes where they have an exercise log they're filling out. Like when we do LSVT big, they have like a daily exercise, kind of a homework log, but it could even be like an app. There's a lot of apps now for activity tracking, but basically that was a big role for us to play. Also, the, um, in the, the interventions, tango dance in a community-based setting showed up, and it seemed that this might stimulate some increased participation in ideals, and they didn't specify the, the ideals that were affected, but it seemed that people were more kind of motivated, engaged in their ideals after doing that community-based uh, tango dance. And then another one is the supervised multimodal exercise programs with a higher intensity and a longer duration. So it seems that people need the intensity of the exercise to be fairly high, you know, safe for them, but higher, um, and then a longer duration. And I know we get a lot of pushback with this with LSVT Big because it's four times a week for four weeks. And people are like, that's so long and that's so much, but it really is needed. Um, And I think if you look at the concepts of neuroplasticity, even motor learning, um, they fit within that framework of you need the repetition and the intensity um, to really make change. So physical activity, physical activity, physical activity. (laughs) That's what... That's pretty much what showed up as far as improving and maintaining. But then also um, increasing the effectiveness or some other IDL interventions when they looked at handwriting. It's been found that there's some hand exercises and writing activities and also external cues, which are visual, that help with handwriting. Medication management, that was looking at actual performance of the, med- of the management activity um, within the context of that person's life. And then using, uh, once again, a CBT approach with the care partner to assess um, the client's medication regimen. Understanding their perception of the med use is really important. And then problem solving um, the practical and attitude barriers. So for example, um, with medication management with Parkinson's, there's a lot of misunderstanding and kind of those urban legends and and misbeliefs about dopamine use. Um, People still think that the longer you take dopamine, the less effective it becomes, which is actually not true. It's your brain is degenerating and so it's not able to uptake the dopamine at the same level. So sometimes you get people that are like, well, if I don't really need that sentiment, I'm just going to not take it. I'll just wait and take it later. So you do get within the medication management with Parkinson's not just to take it or not, or they just forget to take it, but their attitudes really have to be considered. Sometimes they're on a lot of medications and they're worried about them interacting or when they take them or protein can sometimes affect absorption for people. And so they might be like, well, I'm trying to, you know, not take it because I just ate or I need to eat. And so there can be a lot of attitudes and beliefs and barriers around medication management that you really need to address as well. Absolutely. 
those are some wonderful considerations uh, and, and recommendations for practitioners and in, in working with this population, uh, specifically on, on IADL interventions. So thank you. Unless there's something else, I think we can move on to uh, the education, work, volunteering, leisure, yeah. and social participation. Sounds great. <laughs> Perfect. So, so based on the systematic review, which interventions should practitioners consider using uh, to address education, work, volunteering, leisure, and social participation? Well, this is one that didn't tease out so well. <laughs> okay. So we really found a lack of evidence to support intervention within um, the scope of improving or maintaining performance in work, education, volunteering. So we know that it is important, right? As OTs, we really need to promote health and well-being and participation. When we're working with our, our people with Parkinson's, we want to make sure we don't solely focus on strength or flexibility or cardiovascular health without a meaningful connection to their occupation. And then I just wanted to, I have a little author's note here too. They said the secondary lack of evidence is you want to really consider that you're supporting them in meaningful engagement of work, education, volunteering, leisure, and social participation. So we might need to collaborate between, you know, academics and clinical practitioners. We need more evidence in this realm for sure. Um, and the hope is that it would translate more to research. But this was the one area that really kind of they didn't find a lot to support. And then I think you have a question, you know, too, as far as how can you address those gaps? So I don't know if you want me to hit that one now, <laughs> since we've hit a gap. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, Julia, <laughs> about those gaps. And, and also, what would you recommend to, to practitioners? What can they do when there isn't much evidence in the literature when they find those gaps? Yeah, well, yeah, go yeah, ahead. What should, what should do? When I find those gaps for me, I definitely dig in other domains too um, and look at nursing or, you know, physical therapy and see if there's absolutely anything I can find. But I think at the end of the day, you know, if you feel like you're really not finding much, when we know that those things are important. I think if you approach it in a client-centered way, which is essentially what the authors, you know, here were saying, you know, looking at what is meaningful to that person. So, for example, and then doing your task analysis. When I think about work, often things that can come up for work with Parkinson's disease early on are the issues with multitasking. Handwriting can be a problem. Keyboarding, so some of the fine motor or, or dexterity issues. And so it's really, I think, looking at what are the issues with work and then what do we know can help so we know if handwriting is a problem we've got some stuff to do right <laughs> and um, if maybe fatigue you know or sleep issues are causing fatigue then we definitely want to address that but then it, it comes down to kind of basic nuts and bolts OT 101 where okay this person have is having trouble multitasking well how can I help them reduce that? You know, what about the task could I change to where I reduce the need for them to multitask? Or maybe it's environmental, you know, if they have a really messy office setup and, you know, stuff is everywhere and cluttered and it's getting in the way, then we might need to address the environment in some way. So I think you, in those times when I find there's little evidence, I look at what does this person need? What are the barriers to participation? So what is getting in the way? Is it their hand 
handwriting performance? Is it keyboarding? You know, what's, what's the obstacle and how can I help them overcome that barrier? And I think often you can intervene in a way that is successful because some of this, I don't think it means there's nothing we can do. I think that we need to remember when we look at the evidence, sometimes it hasn't been measured or tested as it should have been doesn't mean that nobody's done anything that worked. We just haven't shown it. Or maybe the case size, you know, the sample size wasn't big enough. When we're looking at things like social um, engagement to leisure engagement, I think you again want to look at what are the barriers? Is it that the person now is having trouble driving? Or, you know, I had one gentleman who played golf and he was like, I'm just not really comfortable golfing with my friends anymore because I don't golf like I used to. So he, I worked with him and helped him and he started his own golf group for people with Parkinson's and now he just golfs with other people with Parkinson's so I, I think there's times that you had to kind of have to look at the person what's needed what are the barriers and then it's just basic good old OT how do I help the person overcome these barriers and then with that if you find something that does work <laughs> I think try to collaborate with um, you know academia or researchers and see if we can get more data because we really need to contribute to filling the gap and I think OTs have such a crucial role here in filling this gap. This is really, you know, our playground is when you start looking at participation and all of those things that make quality of life so relevant. Absolutely. And this is really where therapy becomes so fun. Um, Evidence-informed practice is is so important uh, and practitioners obviously want to find evidence and, and incorporate into their practice, uh, but clinical reasoning and creative problem solving and, and person-centered care are also so important. And your recommendations really encourage that among practitioners. Um, so, so thank you. Absolutely. You're welcome. I think it's so important. And I just, you know, I think as OTs, we underestimate sometimes our superpowers and good old basic OT 101 of like task analysis and client-centered care, when you do that, it's magical and it really works. And I think often we think there has to be this exercise or, you know what I mean? Or this tool or an adaptive equipment. And a lot of times it's just getting to know the person and what their needs are and really thinking three-dimensionally. Absolutely. We're on to our, the last category of, of occupation covered in these practice guidelines, the caregiver role. Um, so based, based on the systematic review, which interventions for improving and maintaining performance of the caregiver role should practitioners consider using with clients? This was another area of pretty big gaps. And I will say this, I think this and cognition are the two areas of the most emergence of research. Um, In fact, right now I'm doing my own care partner um, group called Caring for the Carer, a program that I developed here to try to see and we're tracking outcomes. So I think we need a lot more information. But what did tease out um, yoga and cognitive behavioral therapy for the care partner. And the yoga was really focused on targeting stress, depression, and general psychosocial health. So it did seem that, you know, what you're really looking at is kind of the the burden, the caregiver strain, so to speak, and how to help people people overcome that. I think once again, you have to consider, you know, 
is yoga something that person wants or can do? Would mindfulness suffice or qigong or tai chi? I think that that we don't want to get too wrapped up in exactly that intervention, especially if it's not relevant or of interest to that individual. But something I want to say on the co- on the caregiver role too that didn't tease out is I think of caregivers in two ways, our care partners. I think of them as my ally. <laughs> They're my boots on the ground. So often what I'm giving may be recommendations that external cueing is needed or activity tracking, follow-up. When you enlist the you know, if they're willing and interested, um, the support of the care partner in that, it's incredible what they can help with, you know, as far as really supporting the person with Parkinson's. I think it helps deepen their understanding of Parkinson's disease and helps them feel empowered in knowing how to manage some of those changes as well, too. When you teach them a cue, for example, for freezing of gait or, um, you know, for overcoming freezing of the upper limb when they're eating or um, handwriting, whatever it might be, they feel like they understand that and then they can help their loved one. And then I think the second part of that is kind of more what these studies it looks like focused on, which is the general health and well-being of the care partner, which we know you can only take as good a care of someone else as you take of yourself. So definitely addressing some things that are teasing out in other literature as well, or like self-compassion for care partners and self-care. So encouraging them to do their own self-care and self-compassion practice um, to help support their role as a care partner. So I think that those are the things to think about is how you train and educate and enlist and really view the care partner as part of the team. But then also, what do you see that the care partner needs to really care for themselves so that they can be the best care partner for the person with Parkinson's. Um, You know, I had a woman some years ago that literally the ambulance came to pick her up because she was having signs of a heart condition or heart attack and she didn't have anyone to stay with her husband and the ambulance came and she sent them away. And then when her daughter finally showed up sometime later, was able to get there, she went to the hospital. I mean, she could have died. You know, we had to really talk about that. And that meant she needed a plan of action, right, in place for how did she address her own health care. And that was something I didn't take on just on my own. But like we have um, a great social worker at our center. We have a great counseling center. And so at that point, I talked with her. We really need to get social work on board. We need to bring counseling in because this can't happen again. You know, we need to make sure that you're protected, too. So I think it's it's. There might not be a lot of literature out there on that, but I think the self-management program is something that people are starting to focus on more, not just for self-management of the person with Parkinson's, but for the care partner using those self-management strategies, both to help with the care of their loved one, but also managing their own health as well. Absolutely. That's a a great example of what practitioners can be considering and doing uh, to address the, the caregiver role. Absolutely. And even maybe it's a transfer, right? And you have taught this transfer, maybe they, you need to train the um, care partner in how to give those auditory cues or give those visual cues, or maybe it's a physical assist. How can you protect their body so they don't hurt their back when they're helping someone transfer? So I think that those are a lot of the interventions that we can provide as well. Uh, I, I love your metaphor of, of helping the caregiver become your boots on the ground yeah. um, and, and helping in, in intervention and 
um, I guess, all aspects of life outside of therapy. And then, you know what, we become that for them too. Like I tell care partners, you know, the other day somebody was like, I'm trying to tell my husband he shouldn't get on the ladder. This was somebody in my group. And I'm like, punt that ball to PT and OT. You shouldn't be getting in trouble for it. PT and OT say you shouldn't be getting on a ladder because your balance is bad. So I'm like, use us that way too. I think we can really, you know, then the care partner's not taking all the grunt of it. You know, you throw therapies in there. But one time, a really funny aside, um, a care partner, her husband insisted on getting dressed standing up and he was having balance concerns and falling. This is very common. And I was working with him on seated dressing strategies. He was doing great but being stubborn, which often happens a lot too. So she asked me, she said, can I record you saying his name? You know, are you, are you standing up to get dressed again? So I said, okay, sure. So I record this, you know, Mr. Blah, blah, blah. Are you standing up to get dressed again? Well, she told me a couple weeks later, she goes, I played that when I caught him getting his pants on and I thought he was going to fall over because he thought you were in the room. (laughs) Okay. Maybe not the best use of that. Like that could have been dangerous, but (laughs) so, you know, I, I think that, I really encourage people work with your care partners. Now, keep in mind, will you have some sometimes you can't work with? Yes. <laughs> You'll have some who don't want to work with you. They don't want to be involved for whatever reason. Then it's, is there a paid care partner? Is there an adult child? Like, is there someone you can work with? But um, when you can, they're your greatest ally. They're so, so much help. No, absolutely. And Julia, you've shared some excellent case examples already today. Could you share maybe another case study or personal example of when you have implemented an evidence-informed approach that has helped someone with Parkinson's disease attain a positive health outcome? Absolutely. You know, I was thinking about this and, and I went through, it really brought so many people up to mind who have meant so much to me over the years. Because one thing I will say that's very different about this population, you know, Parkinson's disease is not like a stroke where, you know, it's a once and done and they they rehab and they're on. You're with them across their journey. And so I see a lot of people across their entire spectrum of Parkinson's all the way until, you know, they pass eventually. And so they become like family. And so I had to really think back. And in thinking back, a lot of people were called to mind that were just so lovely. But one person really stood out. And so I met this gentleman early on in his Parkinson's journey. He had just been diagnosed and he was sent to us for, um, I think he was originally just sent for physical therapy, which happens a lot. Um, And the physical therapist recognized you could really use occupational therapy. And so she reached out to the doctor and we got the script. And based on his symptoms, he was very bradykinetic. You know, his movements were very slow. He was having a lot of changes to just very minor changes to doing his ADLs. So we did the LSVT big program with him so we could really target giving him an exercise program because he did not exercise. He was not active. He was very interested in it. We were also then able to target his functional tasks that he was having difficulty with. I know one was getting his sock on. I think he had another that was buttoning buttons. Um, You know, it was many years ago now, but I remember those for some reason. And so we did that. He did great. He graduated, moved on. About six months later, because we like to check in, we use a dental model at the clinic I was at. So about every six months, we want to check back in and see how they're doing, just like you see your dentist. And he was having some, you know, minor difficulties then and some other things that were coming up. Difficulty sending emails, some trouble with typing. So once again, 
and did, you know, what we knew in handwriting, um, got in with his handwriting a little bit more, did the interventions that we knew worked as far as the, you know, intensive practice of writing. And that's one I should say too with handwriting. It's the intensive practice. Both of the studies that showed it helped. Um, one, I think, was 30 minutes, five days a week for like six weeks. And then the other one, I think, was a couple of hours a week for like so many months. So it's intensive practice. They can't, they don't just write a little bit and then it's better. Um, but then where it really came down, so I saw this man for many courses of care, right? Little ones like that, where I did evidence-based practice to target. But in the culmination, what was most meaningful was he was very prominent in the arts and had done some very significant things related to civil rights and the arts during his career time. And this was when he was in like his 20s and 30s. And this gentleman now was in his 80s, right? So this is many years ago. And they were still wanting him. There, there was an honor um, coming up where a museum exhibit was being created about the work he had done. And he was at this point further along in his Parkinson's. And he said, I don't, I don't think I can go. He's like, they're going to take a bus. I don't think I can get in and out of bus seats. Um, my fatigue is so bad. I don't think I'll have the energy to do it. You know, I have off times. That's going to be a problem. Offer my medications. And he went through this whole list of why he didn't think he could go. And I looked at him and I said, do you want to go? And he said, well, yes, but I can't because I have all these things. And I said, no, <laughs> I was like, I don't think so. I said, you don't spend your life dedicated to something as huge as that and then give up and not get to go and see the honor, you know, of your work. And so we worked on, we, I got PT in the mix that time. He came back to me, but I got PT in the mix so we could work on his mobility. I worked on getting in and out of bus seats with him. I worked on fatigue management, even though that doesn't tease out a lot in the literature as far as effects. Well, a lot of it is scheduling the day, making sure they have rest breaks, making sure he got his medications on time, that he was eating, all of those just basic, you know, wellness concepts. We created a schedule for the day. We trained his care partner who was going with him. And all of the things about cueing his mobility, about when, how to recognize when he needed a rest break. The PT set him up with trekking poles so that he had a little bit more um, how to gauge his mobility and kind of a, um, a little bit more support for his mobility. And so we worked through all of those things and he went and he saw that exhibit and um, he saw the work that he had done honored in that way, like chokes me up even now. And he was so grateful. And so to see someone, to follow him across that journey and address all of these things that at the time seemed huge, getting in and out of bed or handwriting or whatever it was, to help him participate in something that, in my opinion, it looked like the culmination of someone's life work. And the thought that he could have missed that was really sad. But he came back with pictures and he was so excited and he was so lit up. And he passed a couple of years after that. But I, it's one of the things when I went through and I was writing down all of these people and thinking about who I wanted as an example, I thought that one to me is one of the biggest feathers in my cap. You know, I was able to help him do something that he really deserved. And I, I would have been really sad if he'd missed that opportunity. And I think he would have as well. Thank you. That's such a wonderful example of the power of, of evidence-informed and, and person-centered care um, and really helping people have these meaningful experiences uh, in life. That's what that's what this is all about. Absolutely. You got it. <laughs> well, Julia, we've mentioned LSVT big uh, a number of times in our interview already. 
I notice it's not listed in the clinical recommendations table for the practice guidelines. And I may be misinformed here, but I think it's going to be addressed in a, one of the gaps that you discuss. Could you tell us uh, uh, about that and about the LSVT big program in general? Oh, sure. So yeah, it was, it came up in the gaps because, and it really comes down to how it's measured. You know, it wasn't really, they didn't really measure the impact on occupation or sometimes what happened too, and I know there's been some debate amongst some of the people higher in this than myself, um, is that maybe they did like a COPM, for example, but they didn't put what the specific ADLs or IDLs were that were targeted. So the COPM got better, but they don't know in what. So then those studies weren't included. So definitely we need to improve, I think, how we're measuring occupation-based outcomes and impact on ADLs and IDLs and look at that more. So often in the research, what you see is more like the timed up and go, you know, the five times to stand, Berg. It's kind of these, you know, mobility or assessments that are more quickly and easily measured where you got to really get in there if you're going to measure participation. So I think that's why it was really left out. And then what it is, is it actually fits, you know, when you look at these, you know, like a supervised multimodal exercise program, that is exactly what it is, but it's so much more. So the LSVT big program is a, an exercise and function-based program um, to target the um, amplitude and uh, target amplitude in the system for Parkinson's disease. So LSVT loud is our sister program, and that looks on amplitude to the voice. So making the voice louder to overcome hypophonia. What LSVT big targets is the size of the movements. It, tar- it targets that hypokinesia, those small movements, the bradykinesia, the slower movements. And so there are seven key exercises um, that are part of the program. Two are seated. Um, there are three standing multi-directional stepping exercises. So stepping forward, sideways, or backward. And then um, these different exercises um, that target uh, weight shift, both forward and back and sideways. So the um, the rock and reach exercises. So those exercises are part of everyone's program because they target the specific changes to movement that we see happen with Parkinson's disease. Now, it is a protocol, but you're able to tailor it to the needs of the individual. So let's say with those exercises, I have someone who's very advanced, right? I had one lady who was a triathlete. And so she had a lot of balance challenges. I put a lot of cognitive dual task challenges in there. Her program was really hard and very different from someone maybe who is only able to do the program seated or all of it supine, you know, because they're um, bedridden or, you know, maybe holding onto a chair because they have balance concerns. So you really do make it functional to the level of that individual. But then the part that's very OT driven, and this to me is the beauty of the program, is they have functional component task and hierarchy task, and those should be chosen by the individual. Um, They are you know, select and precise to the individual. So if it's handwriting or doing buttons, getting their keys out of their pocket, their, you know, coat on, whatever it is, then we're targeting the use of that amplitude to drive their movement in the way that is functional to do that task. And then that task is it's task oriented training at its finest or task specific training. And it's repeated every single time. So by the time they finish the program, they've done hundreds of repetitions 
of these. And that, once again, we're back at motor learning, at neuroplasticity, you know, at challenge point framework, you know, um, all these different frames that we know help. Big walking is also always part of their um, program. So practicing um, strategies to make their mobility safer. And then the part I love too is the carryover assignment. We always give them a daily carryover assignment. So it's taking that amplitude we've been working on and applying it to something they're going to do in their daily life. So maybe it's, um, you know, I'm trying to think of a, a really good example here. Oh, maybe it's, it's you know, getting in and out of their favorite recliner. And we've worked on that. Okay, now today when you go home, I want you to get every time you get out of your recliner, you're going to get up in a big way. And we also said, want you to do it in such a way, hopefully that somebody notices. They go, wow, that's different (laughs) because then they get that positive feedback from loved ones. So I love that it's so function. It's so patient centered, but then also that we're always encouraging them to take what we're teaching them in the clinic and take it and practice it outside of there. So we're trying to overcome performance and take it to the point of learning. Absolutely. It, it's such a an awesome program. I had the uh, opportunity to to see it in practice in one of my field works. Shout out to to Jackie and Megan at OSF St. Anthony's in Alton, Illinois, and it's it's an awesome program. And and one of the things I loved about it is it's so easy to see functional improvements uh, through throughout the throughout the program, and that's always really uh, motivating to the client but also really gratifying and encouraging to the therapist as well, seeing that direct impact. Oh, absolutely. And I have to say, like, so much of why I like working with Parkinson's is it's like instant gratification a lot of times. <laughs> you know, they come in and they, they can't get out of the chair and you're like, oh, you know, scoot here, big lean forward, big sit to stand. And they're like, wow. And they think you're like the greatest thing since sliced bread. And you're like, that was easy. You know, now sometimes it's harder. I don't want to paint it like it's all roses, but there is a lot of gratification. Like you were saying, of seeing those functional changes and, you know, you get a lot of feathers in your cap and feel good about yourself <laughs> you feel like you really help somebody instantaneously absolutely it's important to celebrate those absolutely we need that too it helps our motivation as well we've got a basal ganglia to worry about as well (laughs) (laughs) um julia where could practitioners find more information related to lsbt big and if they're interested in in getting certified in it. Oh, absolutely. You go to lsvtglobal.com and you'll find there the information of, there's two different ways to get certified currently. Um, We have live virtual courses online. So where there's live instructors, Um, often I'm one of them. And so we use Zoom and there's still, we have patient volunteers who come in. So you get to work with somebody and almost like a telehealth type, you know, standpoint, teaching the exercise program and teaching the functional components. Um, We also have an online course that people can do in their own time that is recorded. Eventually, we hope to go back to in-person courses, of course, but they can look up those two options and see when the training dates are available for the live courses, or they can start that online course pretty much whenever they want and, and finish that in their own time. There you go. For all our listeners, this is your opportunity to meet Julia. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we have fun, especially all the volunteers that come in. It's a really good time. And that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we're to the conclusion of the interview, Julie. I just have two questions. Uh, One being, what additional resources would you recommend to practitioners who want to learn more about evidence-based practice for working with people who have Parkinson's disease? Absolutely. One recommendation I'd have to make is the Allied Team Training, or now they're changing it to Team Training Program for Parkinson's through the National Parkinson or through the Parkinson's Foundation. Um, That is an 
excellent, excellent program. Um, we do, there's a lot of learning you do on your own about Parkinson's disease in general, all the cognitive changes, driving, all these different uh, falls, um, different elements of education we have. But then we do breakout sessions that are discipline specific. So it's all of us OTs together talking about patient-centered care and evidence-based practice and, and hashing it out. And then also not just focused on our own education, but in how to work as a team, because that's something that teased out as well that I think I didn't mention, unfortunately, um, was the multidisciplinary um, rehabilitation too. And so that comes up often in, um, in, in different elements of research is looking at uh, multidisciplinary care for people with Parkinson's. And so you learn to make your team, you know, and maybe you have a team you work with, or maybe you need to reach out to people in the community and kind of, you know, make connections with a speech language pathologist or physical therapist who's interested as well. But it does take a village when you're talking about this many different symptoms and the impact of the symptoms of cross-function. Um, it can really, it, you need, it, it takes a village, I think is the best way to put it. So I would definitely say the team training for Parkinson's so important. Um, as I mentioned, you can look at the Parkinson's Wellness Recovery Program as well, Brian Grant Foundation. Um, the Parkinson's Foundation has excellent education and resources. Um, Davis Finney Foundation is another good one as well. Um, but there's a whole lot out there. And even the Stanford University, they have a Parkinson's community page, I can get you that resource. Um, but what's nice about it is let's say you're looking for information on sleep. Instead of it just having one organization and what they've done, it lists everything that has been out there as far as, you know, webinars and podcasts and different things related to that topic or, you know, everything they found. And then you can click on those and go to those different resources and listen to them or view them or download them. So that's a great resource too. Absolutely. Thank you for those uh, recommendations. Julie, it's time to end the show. We always end with the golden nugget segment. Here's our golden nugget question for you. If you could give one piece of advice or share one piece of knowledge with OT practitioners, what would you say? Oh, wow. Ooh, deep thoughts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think definitely it's a little bit repetitive, but I think just when in doubt, to me, that in, that nugget that I got when I was at Mayo of viewing that person like they're your own loved one. It helps so much um, because then I look at the person. I'm not seeing them as a disease or as a condition or as, you know, an occupational barrier. I'm really seeing the person in front of me and try as get to know everything you can about them like you were their loved one. What are their interests, their roles, their habits, what's meaningful to them? And I think that for me probably underlies my practice more than anything because often there are clinical gaps you know and we don't know where to go but if you focus on the individual and you really understand what they need and really try to almost put yourself in their shoes in a way I think for me that's what's been most beneficial and most helpful because I'm able to then kind of clear out the clutter of all the things that distract me from doing person-centered care, evidence-based practice, because I'm really able to just see who's in front of me and best address their needs. Absolutely. Thank you, Julia. That's a, a wonderful nugget to end our interview on. 
Uh, thank you again so much for your time and for sharing your expertise and knowledge with us all on the show. Absolutely. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. That's, it's our pleasure. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.